millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Today we have a crazy story of sabotaging someone's chances of getting a job. We'll get into that in a bit, but first, best friend steals my girlfriend, so I destroy his pricey artwork. It's amusing, really, how the ones you go out of your way for, those people you love and cherish and hold close to your heart, always tend to be the ones that always stab you in the back. I thought it was only stuff that happened in the movies. You know, when the main character finds out that someone close to him has been the villain all along and nobody saw it coming. I never knew that things like that happen in the real world, too. Call me naive, but I'm used to thinking that your friends are supposed to be there for you through your good and bad times. I expect that the whole world might turn on you, but not your friends. But then, I found out the hard way that it never worked out like this. It really is your friends that inflict the most hurt and pain on you. My experience of this, which I still call my worst betrayal till this day, was with my high school best friend. Let's call him Alec. I did so much for Alec since he's my best friend, and even though I didn't expect payment of any form, the least I expected was for him to remain my friend and not betray me. But apparently that was too much to ask. The jerk stole my girlfriend and still had the guts to say it to my face and list out all the reasons why he's a better fit for her. It was the worst pain I've had to endure in my life. A combination of heartbreak and betrayal. I made sure to get him back in a way that hurts him, but let me start at the beginning for context. Back in high school, Alec and I were inseparable. Even though I was one class ahead of him, it didn't matter. We were best friends and we did everything together. Alec's parents weren't well-to-do. His dad was a construction worker and he got paid crap money, but Alec was brilliant. He was the best in his class and he was adored by many because of this unique gift. Aside from that, he was the charming and outgoing one. He was funny and girls liked him. He never had a problem getting girlfriends back in high school, even though I successfully finished high school without getting a single girlfriend. Sometimes, I feel like I'm always living under Alec's shadow. One of the reasons is that I never really had friends till Alec came along. Most of the friends I have today are because of him, so technically my friends are actually his friends. Another reason is because he does everything better than me, academically and otherwise. I don't have anything to offer him, except buy him lunch sometimes or invite him over to play video games. Sometimes I wondered why he stuck with me for so long and recently, I started to realize that some people keep friends that don't measure up to them so they could feel superior. It's a twisted mentality, but some people just have that acute narcissism that makes them need to feed on the feeling of superiority they get from others. Anyway, after senior year, I graduated and went off to college, not before making Alec promise that he was going to apply to my college and get a scholarship. Looks like that was my biggest mistake. My first few days in college were bad, because I didn't really get to know how to make friends. I was alone for most of the time. It didn't help that I got an apartment away from campus and I didn't have to socialize with other students. I didn't go to any parties and I rarely talked to my course mates. It bothered me sometimes because before I resumed, I made the resolution to be more outgoing, but I was failing terribly at it. One week into college, I was ready to return home. I missed my family and my best friend Alec. 
After a pep talk on FaceTime from my dad one day, things started to get slightly better. I started to relate more with my course mates, though most of the things we talk about are school and class stuff. I was one of the smartest guys in class and some people usually came to me after class for an explanation of the day's class. It wasn't friendship per se, but it was something. I engaged with them during the class and after, and then I went home to binge watch movies and YouTube videos. This was my routine for the rest of the school year, and after the final exams, I went home for the summer holiday. It was the happiest I've been in a long time. To add to my happiness, Alec confirmed that he was coming to my school. He got a scholarship as planned and everything was set for his resumption. We spent the summer at my parents' beach house where we partied with the rest of the guys who were also home from their various colleges and the newly graduated students who were going to start the new session after the summer holiday. It was the most fun time because Alec was with me. He was given accommodation in the hostel, but he decided that he was going to stay with me. I had two bedrooms in my apartment, so it wasn't a problem. The same day Alec started college, he had already made a bunch of friends. It was crazy and if I wasn't at home when they all came over to play some video games, I wouldn't have believed it. He came home around 6pm with a bunch of guys. Some were from his class, the others, I have no clue where he met them. But we had something like a mini party at home that day. A week after the formal resumption, I was at home watching the latest release of Attack on Titan when Alec came home from school. He took a shower and told me he was going to a frat party in school. I wasn't really interested in the party because my social battery was way too low. Ever since Alex started living with me, he always had a bunch of people over and all that socializing was just too much for me. I wanted to have a quiet night that day, but Alec wasn't having it. He wanted me to come with him and when Alec wants something, he could get very persuasive. Eventually, I agreed to go with him. I went to my room, put on some nice clothes and we set off in my car. We got to the party a few minutes later, and Alec did something no good friend should do. In fact, this was where I should have been seeing the red flags, but I was just too blind to it. As soon as I pulled into an empty parking area, Alec left the car and went into the party without me. That was the last time I saw him that night. He knew that I wasn't very good at socializing, but he still left me. I didn't want to think too much about it, but I knew it was a crappy thing to do. Anyway, I stayed in the car for a moment, contemplating whether to go in or not. I thought about everything that day, what I was doing in that college, what I was doing at that party, and how I would have been better off playing some video games or watching anime. After close to 30 minutes, I decided to leave the car and go to the party. Another mistake I made that I wish I could change, I went into the frat house which was filled with college students getting wild. Everything about the party made me want to puke. The loud noise, the smell of booze, sweat, and vomit hanging in the air. I wanted to turn around and leave the building, but for some reason I kept pushing in. I tried to find Alec, but everywhere I looked, he wasn't there. Sometimes I'd spot him in the distance, downing cups of booze or talking to pretty girls, but when I got close enough, he'd have disappeared. At one point, I was sure that I was hallucinating him. Funny how I haven't drunk anything at that time. After some time, I gave up trying to find him. I squeezed through the crowd and made my way to the kitchen area, hoping that it would be more quiet in there, but I was wrong. It was just as crowded as every other part of the building. I was feeling a bit thirsty, so I grabbed a dispensable cup and poured myself some punch from a dispenser, placing the cup to my lips. 
Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Storytime is sponsored by BetterHelp. Nearly everyone at some point in their life will struggle with their mental health, whether that's something stressful at work, in a personal relationship, or something else. I know that I really struggled with anxiety in my early 20s, and therapy was a massive help for me. That's why I'm a massive fan of therapy, and today's sponsor, BetterHelp. If there is anything in your life, big or small, that is negatively affecting you, get it off your chest with BetterHelp. It's an online therapy service that, after finishing a small questionnaire, will match you with a licensed therapist, where you can book appointments that match up with your schedule at any place or any time. And if you feel like you're not bonding with your therapist, you can switch at any point for free. Also, therapy isn't just if you're struggling with mental health. If you're looking for guidance or ways to improve your social skills, life, or relationships, it's a great judgment-free way of doing that. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com StorytimePod today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash StorytimePod. I stopped. It's a frat party. They most likely laced the punch with something... I wanted to drop the cup on the counter, but for some reason, I held it with me as I left the kitchen area. At this point, I was thoroughly regretting the fact that I let Alec talk me into going to this party. I hated every second of being there, and I decided to go home. I went back to the parking area, and to my dismay, another car had been parked behind mine. I had no idea who owned the car, and there was no way I could get to the person in the crowd of people at the party. My apartment was far away from where the party was being held, so walking home wasn't an option. Besides, there are lots of drunk people in the party. What's to say someone won't try to key my car or just vandalize the heck out of it? Seeing that I had no choice, I had to go back to the party, at least to wait till the person parked behind me left. I contemplated staying outside, but it was a cold night and it was also kind of crowded. Staying on the ground floor was also not the best idea, so I made my way upstairs. I hoped that I'd find a room or something that was quiet so I could pass the time, but every room I checked had people either talking, playing games, or making out. Eventually, I gave up looking for a room. I went down to the open balcony to find a corner to sit. I could tolerate the cold, but not the people. Eventually, I got there and sat in a corner, watching the people downstairs make a fool of themselves. Less than 10 minutes after I'd found a comfortable spot, I heard footsteps behind me. I groaned in frustration and was about to leave when the person came to sit at the other corner of the balcony. The first words she said to me were, Is that punch? I turned to the side and my eyes went wide at the beautiful girl sitting beside me. She's not the prettiest girl I've seen, obviously, but she has this stunning look that left me speechless for a moment. I didn't expect that someone that pretty would decide to talk to me, and that messed up my ability to speak. 
She had to call me to order before I snapped back to reality. I looked into the cup and answered her question. Then she said that she just arrived at the party and they were all out of punch downstairs and she didn't want to drink because she couldn't deal with the hangover the next day. Next, she asked if I was still drinking mine and I said no. I explained why but she still didn't believe that it was true so I gave her the drink. I asked why she opted to sit on the balcony and she explained that she didn't know anyone at the party and that she'd come to see a friend only for the friend to text her after getting here that she wouldn't be able to make it. It was a similar situation to mine and I told her about it. We bonded because of our crazy friends. Another two hours of talking and laughing in the balcony, she was ready to leave. I decided to escort her. We got to the ground floor and I glanced at the parking spot only to see that the car behind mine had left and I could go home now. I called Alec and after a few declined calls he picked up, I told him that I was leaving and he just said bye. I asked the girl if I could drop her off to where she's going, and she readily agreed. We got to my car and I dropped her off to her apartment building. It was when she was ready to leave the car that I remembered I didn't ask her name. I asked then, and she told me it was Amanda. I also introduced myself, and we exchanged contacts. I got home and all I could think of was texting her. I didn't, eventually, because I used to overthink every scenario. I had it at the back of my mind that she can never like me and that crippling fear made me unable to text her. The next day, surprisingly, I woke up to a text from Amanda. She said hi and thanked me for the ride. I replied that it was nothing and she asked what I was doing that day. It was a Saturday and my plan for the day was to watch anime. I told her I had nothing going and she asked me if I wanted to hang out. I was so surprised and elated. I quickly said yes and she told me her friends were going to a cinema and I should come with them. She asked if I could bring my car so they wouldn't need to pay for a cab. Thinking about it now, I should have been suspicious here, but I wasn't. I was taking my car either way, so I didn't mind giving her friends a ride. We got to the cinema, and after the movie, we hung out at a restaurant for a few hours. This was our routine for the next few Saturdays. Eventually, I worked up the courage to tell her how I feel about her. I asked her to be my girlfriend and she said yes. It was one of the happiest moments of my life. But like every other happy moment of my life, it was short-lived. During the first few weeks of us dating, I never invited her over to my apartment whenever Alec was around. Didn't know why I did that. It wasn't because I didn't want them to meet. At least subconsciously it wasn't. But I always kept them apart. Alec had heard me talking on the phone a few too many times. But whenever he asked me who I was talking to, I always found a way to brush off the question and whenever Amanda asked about my roommate, I never gave her a straight answer. It was as though I had known that them meeting would be the first domino to fall, leading to the end of my happy relationship. One Saturday, without a call or text, they met and hit it off immediately. They had a lot in common and started to talk like long-lost friends. I wasn't comfortable with it, but if I'd said something... They'll just label me as insecure. They exchanged numbers and started to talk more often. Obviously, I wasn't okay with that and I told Alec. And just as I said, he called me insecure. We fought the whole thing that day, but Alec didn't apologize. He even went as far as moving to the school accommodation because of our fight. Another week later, I decided that I was going to apologize to him so he could move back in. I went to his hostel, and that was when I saw him and Amanda making out in his room. I've never felt the kind of pain I felt that day in my entire life. 
It was as though I was being stabbed repeatedly in the heart with a frozen knife. Amanda was remorseful. She told me it was a mistake, but Alec told me that I didn't deserve her because I was boring and an introvert. He went on to list reasons why he was better than me and why he was a better fit for her. Things like the fact that he was taller, he was muscular, he was smarter, more outgoing. Basically everything. I broke up with Amanda right there and left. I spent the next few days thinking about how to get back at Alec for what he did to me, but surprisingly, the answer was closer to me than I thought. Ever since Alec left my apartment, I never went into his room, because I always respected his privacy, and I thought that he was going to be back. But that day, I decided to look around, and there it was. A $2,000 painting that Alec bought with his life savings back when he was in senior high. He had been saving for that painting since he was in sophomore year, and he bought it before he came to college. I have no idea why he bought the painting, but I think he loves that it makes him seem more sophisticated. Anyway, he left it in the room, along with the rest of his stuff. I think he also never planned to stay in the hostel forever. He always thought he'll be back, so he left the majority of his things there. Without hesitation, I took the painting and burnt it at the top of the apartment. A week later, when Alec came back to pack his stuff, he asked about the painting and I told him I had no idea where it was. He reported me to the police, but they couldn't charge me for anything. After all, the apartment is mine and there's no evidence that I took his painting. He could have dropped it when he moved to the hostel. The day the policeman asked me a few questions is the last time I saw Alec again. I hope it lasts forever. I don't know if it was kind of a situation of them just growing up and moving on, or if sadly it was like OP said where they feel like they have to surround themselves with people that just make them feel like a superior being. Either way, it's kind of a depressing outlook regardless of what side it falls on. That said, our next story is, Tardy Julie got what was coming to her, so what if I had a hand in it? In the realm of my professional journey, I've always embarked on a path where dedication and hard work were my guiding principles. I took pride in giving my best to every task, striving to be a beacon of diligence amidst the ebb and flow of workplace dynamics. However, there was one aspect that constantly chafed at my resolve, the presence of colleagues who seemed to have a casual approach to their responsibilities. The frustration of witnessing slackers in action ignited a fire within me, urging me to confront this issue head on. Ever since I was a little girl, I'd always believed in the power of exemplary work ethic and also a bit of karma. You have to get what you dish out. Starting out, I was determined to stand out as someone who not only met expectations, but exceeded them. This commitment to excellence was a reflection of my personal values and the sense of responsibility I felt toward my role. I relished the sense of accomplishment that came from a job well done and sought to foster an environment where others shared this passion for performance. However, the reality of any workplace is that it comprises a diverse array of individuals, each bringing their own approach to the table. It was amidst this diversity that I encountered Julie, a co-worker whose lackadaisical attitude clashed starkly with my own. Julie's penchant for disappearing during critical moments, shirking responsibilities, and being constantly late grated on my nerves. Observing her disregard for the standards I held dear was a source of constant irritation, as I couldn't comprehend how someone could be so indifferent to their work. My journey took an unexpected turn when the vexation I felt reached a boiling point. It wasn't enough for me to merely tolerate her lack of dedication, I felt compelled to take action. 
The decision to confront the issue stemmed from a place of genuine concern for the workplace's productivity and the well-being of the team. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. It was clear that Julie's behavior was impacting not only her own performance, but also the overall effectiveness of our collective efforts. And it wasn't fostering the team play I'd come to love about where I'd previously worked. In the complex world of professional interactions, the clash between dedication and indifference often triggers a cascade of emotions. The conflict between my commitment to excellence and the frustrations stirred by Julie's actions illuminated the intricacies of workplace dynamics. As I grappled with this internal struggle, a sense of resolve began to crystallize. It was evident that I couldn't idly stand by and let the status quo persist so what I eventually did was fueled by a desire for a more harmonious and productive workplace. And it wasn't even like I had it all planned. Fate just seemed to put Julie at my mercy. The tale of Julie and her actions, coupled with my response, became a miniature of the larger narrative, where commitment to work in the pursuit of justice intertwined in unexpected ways. Like I had earlier stated, Professional Journey opened up a realm of diverse colleagues each adding their unique touch to the intricate tapestry of our workplace. Among this mosaic of personalities comes the worst of them all, Julie, a seasoned veteran with a reputation that stood in stark contrast to the commendable work ethic upheld by many. Because I always like to avoid mentioning her name, I'll simply refer to her as Jay from here on. Jay's approach to work was defined by an almost palpable lack of enthusiasm. Her uncanny ability to vanish for extended periods, conveniently disregard radio calls, and immerse herself in her phone during work hours was nothing short of a masterpiece. But it didn't stop there. Her mastery extended to perfectly timing lengthy bathroom breaks right when her presence was most crucial. And as for her claim of studying during lunch breaks, that too unraveled when she was discovered slumbering at her desk one fateful day, her supposed books nowhere in sight. Yet, beyond these idiosyncrasies, one behavior of Jay's emerged as a pervasive thorn in the side of her colleagues and administration alike, her chronic tardiness. The prevailing rule within our workplace was that no one could leave until their successor arrived. This golden rule ensured a smooth transition of responsibilities, however, in Jay's realm, Time seemed like an abstract concept. Her tendency to arrive late was almost a surreal constant in the rhythm of our workplace, causing the frustration among her colleagues left in limbo to escalate to unprecedented heights. As I walked further along my professional path, I encountered colleagues who embodied a diverse range of attitudes and work ethics. Some approached their responsibilities with dedication and vigor while others, like Jay, seemed to possess a nonchalant disposition that defied the very essence of a productive workplace. This stark contrast ignited a sense of conflict within me. My unwavering commitment to excellence was at odds with my growing agitation over those who appeared content with mediocrity. However, 
It was a particular incident that underscored the implications of Jay's casual approach to her duties. A work break, designed to be a brief interlude for recuperation, turned into a prolonged absence. Jay's disappearing act on this occasion was nothing short of a spectacle. Hours stretched by as her colleagues watched the clock, their patience wearing thin with each passing minute. This episode not only highlighted her disregard for the team's time and effort, but also created a ripple effect that reverberated through the remainder of the shift. It was an occurrence that, far from being isolated, reflected a much broader pattern of behavior. The impact of Jay's chronic tardiness extended beyond the immediate inconvenience it caused her co-workers. In one particularly poignant instance, her lateness had dire consequences for a colleague who had eagerly anticipated a significant personal moment. As the minutes turned into hours and Jay's absence persisted, this colleague found herself ensnared in a web of frustration and disappointment. It was this very incident that cast an ominous shadow on my perspective of Jay. The person on shift, who was supposed to sign over the responsibilities to Jay, was left stranded in a state of prolonged overtime due to her absence. The atmosphere of frustration was palpable, as what should have been a routine handover turned into a marathon of waiting. And when Jay eventually sauntered in, her nonchalant demeanor added insult to injury. The lack of acknowledgement, or even a simple sorry, sent a clear message. A message that crystallized the essence of her attitude towards her role and the people who relied on her. This experience became a symbol of the broader tensions within the workplace. The clash between unwavering dedication and indifference had reached a boiling point. It was no longer just about individuals coexisting in a professional environment. It was about the consequences of actions on the collective morale and efficacy of the team. The frustration over Jay's actions was no longer confined to fleeting moments of irritation. It had evolved into a catalyst for reflection on the larger implications of one's approach to work. Did Julie finally get to be a better worker? No, she only grew worse and just some days later did the unthinkable. It was the pinnacle of Jay's blatant disregard for punctuality. She inexplicably vanished from the workplace, leaving a void that reverberated with disbelief and frustration. The initial days of her conspicuous absence sent ripples of concern throughout the team. As the hours turned into days and days into weeks, it became evident that something was amiss. The void left by Jay's absence was accompanied by a wave of speculation, as colleagues exchanged bewildered glances and supervisors scrambled to make sense of the situation. Efforts to reach Jay yielded no results leaving my supervisor in a state of bewilderment and growing concern. Repeated phone calls and unanswered emails only added to the enigma. As days transformed into weeks and weeks into a full-fledged month, the workplace felt like a ship adrift without its captain. The void left by her absence was palpable, casting a shadow over our daily routines and highlighting the extent to which each cog in the wheel contributed to the overall machinery of our workplace. Amidst this puzzling disappearance, a new element entered the narrative, Jay's mother. In a somber twist, she became the bearer of an explanation, one that was meant to alleviate concerns and provide a semblance of understanding. According to her account, a family tragedy had struck, necessitating Jay's absence from her professional responsibilities. The narrative painted was one of grief and hardship, a story that seemed to explain her absence in the most compassionate of terms. 
However, as with many of the stories Jay had always given in situations like this, something did not quite add up. A casual perusal of her active Facebook account unveiled a different facet of her life, one that was unlike the image of mourning she had painted. In place of the sorrowful moment you might expect, the post depicted a different story altogether. Early morning spent reveling in bars and nights of carefree enjoyment. The jarring discrepancy between the presented narrative and the glimpses into her actual activities fueled a wildfire of speculation. The oddness between the family tragedy she had conveyed and the celebratory scenes portrayed online spurred doubts and questions. As colleagues observed her seemingly carefree existence in stark contrast to her purported personal turmoil, whispers of preferential treatment and hidden agendas began to circulate. The suspicions that emerged were grounded in a sense of frustration and disillusionment. How could someone who seemingly evaded their responsibilities with such nonchalance be granted the leniency to continue without repercussions? The disparity between her public actions and private explanations sowed seeds of doubt regarding her position within the company. The question of whether she held a privileged position, shielded from the consequences of her actions, loomed large in the minds of those who had long borne the brunt of her irresponsible behavior. The entire episode laid bare the intricacies of workplace dynamics, the complex interplay of trust, accountability, and fairness, the divergence between the story presented to supervisors and the reality glimpsed on social media underscored the challenge of maintaining transparency in a professional setting. It also magnified the palpable frustration of colleagues who had long observed her escapades with mounting irritation. As the dust settled on this particular episode, it left a trail of uncertainty and a lingering unease among the team. And of course, she came into work like two months after just the same way she had disappeared. No reason, no apologies, just back to doing the average things she would normally do during office hours. You might be wondering at this point why no one cared to sack her. Well, it was probably because she was good friends with the head of our department, and he sure knew how to cover her tracks where the higher-ups were concerned, but not for long, because the sweetest thing, well, for me, soon happened. She got sacked. The arrival of the new district manager was a pivotal moment that signaled a significant shift in the unfolding narrative of Jay's journey. This resolute and no-nonsense manager entered the scene with a steadfast dedication to revitalizing and enforcing a set of rules and guidelines that had remained in the shadows of neglect for an extended period. Among the sweeping transformations brought about by this managerial change was the introduction of mandatory testing protocols. These protocols were designed with the primary objective of ensuring strict adherence to both state and federal regulations that governed the operational landscape. The once overlooked regulations now took center stage, demanding attention and compliance from every corner of the organization. Within this context, Jay's performance on these mandatory tests emerged as the conclusive factor, ultimately sealing her fate. Whether it was her inability to meet the newly established standards, or a reluctance to align with the rigorous demands of the regulations, her test results, or lack thereof, served as the definitive factor that brought about her dismissal. This outcome, while perhaps anticipated by some, carried significant weight as it marked the culmination of a series of missteps and shortcomings that had transpired over time. 
The decision to terminate Jay's employment was met with a notable absence of regret from those who had borne the brunt of her actions for an extended duration. The toll of her behavior, which had been endured by colleagues and superiors alike, seemed to cast a long shadow over any sympathy or leniency that might have been considered. Thus, her departure from the organization was viewed through a lens of necessary closure, a resolution that acknowledged the imperative of upholding regulations and maintaining a harmonious working environment. However, this was not the revenge I got on her. Though I was the happiest that she got sacked, I was not still satisfied with the measure of karma that was meted out on her, and fate seemed to agree with me too. During a regular day at the office, some months after, something interesting happened. A phone call came in and interrupted the usual routine. The person on the other end of the call asked about a former co-worker who had left due to health problems. This talk became more surprising when the caller mentioned they were from a government agency. They were checking into Jay's background. This news added importance to the conversation. At that moment, I almost said that the former co-worker was a reference for Jay, but then the caller's government affiliation was mentioned, which stopped me from saying anything. The agency they were calling from was an important one, one that was more prestigious and demanding than ours and perhaps I was doing them a favor by my next actions. It made me think about things beyond our regular office work. After a short pause and a drink of water, I pretended to be the former co-worker. I told the caller everything truthfully about Jay, how she worked and what kind of person she was. I didn't leave out any details painting a clear picture of how she didn't put much effort into her job. When the conversation was almost over, the caller thanked me for the information and hung up. The talk seemed like a small thing, something that would be forgotten, but as time went on, it became more important. Looking back, that phone call changed things, and though I didn't tell anyone I knew, it was only a matter of time before I heard the full result of it. It was like starting a series of events that would only show their effects later on. What seemed ordinary became special, and a simple chat turned into something deeper, waiting to be discovered, just like sparks waiting inside embers until the right moment to shine again. The news came to us through social media that Jay had tried to get a really important job with the government, a job many of us were excited about. She wrote something on her Facebook page that made us feel kind of good. She was upset because she didn't get the government job she wanted so much. She thought she should have gotten it, but she didn't, and that made us feel a little better about everything that had happened before. When I heard that she didn't get the job, a peculiar blend of emotions welled up within me. There was a subtle tug of satisfaction, almost like a fleeting sense of vindication that gently lifted the weight of previous frustrations. Jay's application for the coveted government position had been met with anticipation by many of us, and her failure to secure it felt like a twist of poetic justice. In the midst of our shared work environment, where dynamics can be as intricate as a spider's web, the news of Julie's unsuccessful job application brought an unexpected ripple of contentment. Her frequent disregard for work responsibilities and her often cavalier attitude had left a trail of dissatisfaction among her colleagues. This collective sentiment of disappointment now seemed to find a faint echo in her own disappointment. Thinking back on what happened, I feel a little bad about feeling secretly happy when Julie didn't get the job. My emotions are mixed. Part of me understands how she must have felt disappointed, while another part remembers how her actions bothered us. But even with these mixed feelings, I wouldn't change what I did. I wonder if Julie learned something from this experience. 
Maybe she looked at what she did and thought about how she works. It's something I hope for, even though I'm not entirely sure. If this happens, it would feel good to know that a small thing like her not getting the job made her think and change for the better. As I try to understand my own feelings, I realize something uncomfortable. I might do the same thing again if I had the chance. It's not because I want to hurt her, but because I know that tough situations can sometimes help us grow. I can imagine the situation happening again in my mind, but this time, I would hope that her disappointment could make her become a better person. It's like admitting that, even when I feel bad about it, the chance for good changes is important. Looking back, I would probably do similar things, hoping that they could help someone become better. Even if I feel sorry about it, the idea of helping someone grow, even if it's not the easiest way, still feels right. Perhaps she's learned her lesson, or perhaps not, since she didn't even know why she didn't get the job in the first place, but just maybe, and this is a big maybe, she'll get to see this post and relate with it so well that she would shape up her life and work ethics. Sadly, I do think it's a rather big maybe that they'll end up seeing this post, but I think honestly, even beyond maybe helping her through difficulties or being denied and giving them kind of secondhand the feeling that they need to work harder and be better, I think you probably gave the government agency the most help here considering the kind of worker she was. But with that being said, that's all the time we have for today. Now if you want to hear another crazy revenge story, check out that video on the left. Or if you missed my latest video, check out that video on the right. That said, I'll see you all next time with some more stories.